Bonjour, you restless Declans, and welcome to the Blind Boy podcast. If you're a brand new listener to this podcast, if this is your first podcast, I recommend going back and listening to some earlier podcasts, or even starting at the start of the podcast. But you can really pick any episode you like. They're all different, and they're not sequential. But in doing so, you get to familiarise yourself with the lore of this podcast. If you're a regular listener, you know the crack. How are you? I hope you've had a lovely week. The weather is getting much, much better. The days are longer. The air smells better. It's warmer. It's at that level of warmth where, like, I've got two cats up my back garden. And when, when cats lie down in, in the warm sun with their bellies in the air, it looks like they're sweating. But I don't think they are sweating. I don't think cats can sweat. But it's definitely sweaty cat weather where... A reclining cat in the May sun takes on the appearance of sweating. It's performative cat sweat weather. <laughs> so I've got a a particularly nice treat for you this week in this week's podcast. I sat down and I had a chat with a neuroscientist by the name of Sabina Brennan. And Sabina is, she's a neuroscientist, she's a health psychologist, and she's also a science communicator. And most importantly... She's an expert in her field, but she's incredibly passionate about the field that she's in, which is neuroscience. So this week's episode is is going to be all about the human brain, the human brain. Because I speak about mental health on this podcast, but I don't know much about the actual brain. I speak about the abstraction of emotions, but Sabina is an expert in the actual human brain. And it's very, very fascinating. It's very fascinating. And I learned quite a lot of stuff I did not know about before. Sabina is also a podcast host. She hosts a podcast called The Super Brain Podcast. She is an, a best-selling author. She's written 100 Days to a Younger Brain and, and a book called Beating Brain Fog. So this podcast really is about the human brain. And Sabina gives some wonderful insight and tips into how we can train our brains and make them healthier and how our brains do the things they do and why we speak about anxiety depression creativity the importance of sleep dementia trauma loads of stuff and it was it was a very helpful conversation for me from kind of a self-help perspective so one thing I would like to say before I get into this podcast, just to let ye know that I'm kind of continually aware of this. So this podcast, I bring up cognitive behavioral therapy a couple of times. We mention mindfulness. I think we touch on the importance of exercise. And I speak a lot about exercise, mindfulness, CBT. And these things are incredibly helpful for me. They really work for me and that's why I speak about them. But like in the context of a mental health pandemic, let's just call it that because that's what it is. In the context of a mental health pandemic in Ireland and also in the context of we don't really have a robust mental health system at the moment. A lot of people feel failed by the mental health system. A lot of people can't access the appropriate mental health services that they need. There's very long queues. In that context, sometimes things like mindfulness exercise CBT they can be quite insulting to people 
because lots of people go to their doctors or go to professionals and say I'm suffering and because services aren't adequate often people are just told do some mindfulness do some exercise or do some CBT because you can read that out of a book and that approach is really failing a lot of people the thing is with mental health or with mental illness everyone is unique and people need an approach that suits their individual needs which is overseen by a professional or, or a full team of mental health professionals so when you start roaring men, uh, start shouting out exercise mindfulness CBT that's not very helpful to someone who's in, in a severe sense of crisis like somebody who might be dealing with complex issues around trauma or something like that telling them go home and do some CBT via self help or do some mindfulness you know, look up some mindfulness videos on YouTube. That's really inappropriate and a sign of a, a system that's in failure. So I'd like you to know that that's in my awareness when I speak about these things. And also I'd ask of you, because this is a kind of a trend I'm, I'm seeing online. Don't get angry with CBT exercise or, or mindfulness. Don't get angry with these things because they are helpful. Like CBT is an evidence-based approach. So don't get angry with these things. Get angry with a system that is presenting these things as the only solution because of a lack of resources. Do you get me? I say this too because I'm aware that there's people who listen to this podcast because their doctors have told them to listen to this podcast. I get mails every so often where people will say, I came to your podcast because my, my counsellor told me to listen to you. Or my doctor told me to listen to you. Because they say, blind boy speaks about mental health. Listen to him, it might help. Now, that's fantastic. I love to think that me speaking about my experiences can help some people. But on the other hand, that's really sad and troubling. Because I'm not a mental health professional. I studied it a little bit. But I'm just someone with a plastic bag on his head who speaks about their own experiences. And it, it upsets me that sometimes people are sent to this podcast because the alternative is a six-month queue to get appropriate services. It shouldn't be the case. Um, I'd like people to listen to this podcast in conjunction with appropriate, with receiving appropriate services for their individual needs. And I never want to be Mr. Mindfulness, Mr. Exercise, Mr. CBT. I understand that... These things don't work for everybody and it can be quite insulting to somebody who needs something much more robust and tailored for them. Like I did nearly two years of psychotherapy with a professional, like talk therapy, before I was able to even consider something like CBT. Because when I entered therapy, I didn't have any language for my emotions. I didn't know what I was feeling. I was experiencing agoraphobia. I was in real crisis. And talk therapy over time got me to a point where I was then in the position to help myself with exercise, mindfulness, CBT. But it was only through access to services in college that I got to that point. So I don't want to interrupt the chat I'm having with Sabina with the mid-podcast advert that Acast inserts. So we're going to have our little ocarina pause right now before I get into the chat, okay? Um, I'm going to use a shaker instead of an ocarina this week to mix things up. 
So you're going to hear an advert now. That was the shake. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Pause. you would have heard an advert there for some products you may or may not need. I don't know. The advert was digitally inserted. I don't know what it was. Support for this podcast comes from you, the listener, via the Patreon page. Patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast. This podcast is my full time job. This podcast is how I earn a living. Most weeks I put out uh, quite a long monologue type essay that requires a huge amount of research. So that's why it's my full time job. I adore doing it. I love it. I love making this podcast because each week I put out something that I genuinely care about, that I genuinely want to make. And if you're enjoying that, if you listen to this podcast and you like it, just please consider paying me for the work that I'm doing. If you met me in real life, would you buy me a pint or a cup of coffee? If the answer is yes, that's what I'm looking for. The equivalent of a price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month you can do it on patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast. Okay? If you can't afford that, you don't have to. You can listen for free. If you can afford it, you're paying for the person who can't afford it. So everybody gets a podcast. I earn a living. And it's a wonderful model based on kindness and soundness. And it gives me a sense of certainty in my life because... I can plan, I can financially plan in my life. It's wonderful. Another reason you should be a patron of this podcast is it keeps the podcast independent, by which I mean no advertiser tells me what to speak about or what I should do. And I can tell an advertiser to fuck off if they try, which is a wonderful sense of freedom. And the podcast space in general right now is, it's it's really under threat because all you got to do is look at the podcast charts of the past year. It's oversaturated with all of these brand new podcasts that have big celebrity names and there's huge money behind them so traditional media spaces like newspapers tv radio they're pumping all their budgets now into podcasts but that doesn't necessarily mean that those podcasts are good podcasts for me were always about small independent productions where the person making it or the small team that's making it really care about what they're making and that's what made podcasts magical you're listening to people being really passionate and I got into podcasting to move away from the more mainstream spaces that are dominated by profit and listenership where making something that you really care about is impossible so the podcast space is kind of small independent podcasts are being drowned out 
and are becoming invisible and now you just have this this kind of mainstream noise going on where the overall quality of podcasts is being reduced so support independent podcasts not just mine whatever independent podcast you're listening to and you're enjoying support that podcast all right if you want to support me patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast i really really appreciate it and thank you so much to all my patrons catch me on twitch thursday nights twitch.tv forward slash the blind by podcast where i make live music to the events of a video game leave a review of the podcast on whatever podcast app you're doing or using share the podcast with your friends or just tell a friend about it that stuff helps as well yurt so just wanted to flag that before i get into this this podcast which is really fucking interesting conversation with a neuroscientist about the human brain and about things that we can do to help our brains and to help our emotions so here's the chat dr sabina brennan check her out check out her podcast the super brain podcast and her website which is sabinabrennan.ie where you can see all our books and stuff all right sabina brennan uh you are a neuroscientist and before we get into the chat can you just describe to me what what is a neuroscientist yeah that's a good question it, it, it's actually kind of an umbrella uh you know term it's and and it describes anybody uh, i suppose academics anybody who studies the relate the, the the human brain physiologists uh people looking at physical aspects of the brain it can you know microbiologists you know people from all angles but i'm actually a health psychologist and mm-hmm. my interest is, is the relationship between the brain and human behavior i'm just interested in what makes us do what we do and be who we are um i'm just fascinated actually i love it, people and, and i'm kind of well no that's a lie i don't love people i love under yeah <laughs> i love understanding what you know why people do what they do uh, and the brain holds all the answers as far as i'm concerned is it fair to say is is it is is is, is neuroscience the person who deals with the physical parts of the computer rather than the software um no well no, well that's kind of a good analogy because they often use that analogy in neuroscience you know that you have the hardware and the software so like mm-hmm. your 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 brain you know the neurons and the connections between it being the hardware and then the software being what you do with it you know the cognitive functions like mm-hmm. you know memory and thinking and emotions um but it's kind of artificial link because they are all one do you know that kind yeah. of way so no people kind of people study different aspects i suppose some people physiologists and and um other sort of more what they'll call wet sciences you know people in a laboratory looking at okay. you know looking at a number of the cells and how they work and like do, do you ever have to look at an actual brain no i don't you see no, no. So what? I, well, well, that's a lie. I don't look at an actual physical brain, but like, say, my PhD was. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> now get the title now. Hang on. Um, neurophysiological and electrophysiological. No, neurocognitive and electrophysiological. Electrophysiological indices of cognitive function in aging. So basically, wow. I actually looked 
being a euphemism for um, looked at the human brain, looked at the electrical activity in the human brain. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like you can get a ECG for your heart, you know, yeah. where they put those stickers on your heart and they can see um, the electrical functioning in your mm-hmm. brain, in your heart. Um, well, that's kind of what I did for my PhD, stuck sort of 64 electrodes on people's heads and uh, looked at the electrical activity in their brain as they carried out memory tests and attention tests and um, all sorts of different activities and so uh, whilst you can kind of see lines going up and down when you're recording that you actually then have to take it away and do this huge kind of mathematical really boring (laughs) um, analysis to, to look for patterns that are linked to when somebody was doing a particular thing like remembering a specific word yeah this is something i'd like to know about actually so i i saw someone getting brain surgery on the tv it was real it was real but the person was like a violin player yeah and they operated on their brain while the person was playing violin what's that about (laughs) well i haven't seen it But um, I know certainly before you have brain surgery, so like say people who have epilepsy mm-hmm. um, may need to have uh, brain surgery because they have the, the electrical signal signal in their brain. I should say to people before we kind of go a bit further, because I don't know whether your listeners know how the brain kind of kind of works and how. Um, but basically, you've got 86 billion neurons in your brain, 86 billion brain cells and trillions of connections, mm-hmm. and they communicate with each other and with the cells in the rest of your body through electrical and chemical signals. So that's how the brain works. It's really, really incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, basically what you were saying sort of about uh, surgery. So if, if someone say has epilepsy, the electrical mm-hmm. signaling goes um, haywire, you know, and they might get, they have too much electrical activity going. It's like an electrical storm and they have their fit and things go wrong. So mm-hmm. sometimes they want to go in and do a little bit of surgery on that. But um, they have to be very careful that if they're operating on the brain, they don't actually, you know, damage a part of the brain that's critical to your brain functioning. Um, I mean, obviously, uh, you need every part of your brain. But the yeah. thing is with the brain, roughly speaking, we know where different activities take place so like language will be roughly in the same place in my brain as it is in your brain Mm -hmm. but because your brain is constantly changing right so you're not stuck with the brain you were born with right in fact you've uh, really got a completely different brain from the brain you were born with because your brain is constantly changing and it's your behaviors your experiences the life choices that you make that can shape your brain could we compare it to a muscle in any way like if i do a bunch of exercises for my chest i will grow my chest yes if i neglect my arms i won't grow my arms yes is the brain similar yes it's not wow. a muscle. It's not a muscle, but it is absolutely similar. Yes. So basically what you have is the brain has this um, incredible capacity to learn. That's how we have evolved as a species. Mm-hmm. We have adapted and changed to our environment. So adapting and changing to your environment is learning. That's what learning is. OK, mm-hmm. so basically the brain has this incredible capacity uh, to adapt and change with learning. And that's called neuroplasticity. So the yeah. brain is described as being plastic. So not credit card plastic. Think of Mala, mm-hmm. you know, plasticine that you pulled and played around with in school. But basically in response to um, learning new information or experiencing something new in the environment um, your brain has the capacity to grow new connections. 
Um, and that actually is what physically changes the architecture of your brain. So if you actually, you just mentioned a musician there. Yeah. So, um, you know, the areas in the brain of a musician who is constantly practicing, you know, yeah. music will be very different to that area in someone like me who doesn't play music. Um, like there's a fabulous study, and I love quoting this study because it was carried out by an Irish woman in the UK. And it's a very well-known study, but it kind of explains, helps to explain neuroplasticity in a really simple way. In fact, I made a little animation of it. So if you want to throw in the show notes, I'll kind of, say, mm -hmm. you know, just look up superbrain.ie. There's lots of little animations. But this one explains a study uh, that was done on L London taxi drivers. So basically, this woman, Mary Maguire, um, the, the studies had been done looking at a part of the brain in homing pigeons it's called yeah. the hippocampus and it's involved in learning and memory and it's also involved in what we call spatial navigation so that's you just you know walking around in the environment sitting in the environment like that's your brain is doing that it's constantly looking and making judgments about where you are relative to that wall or that door mm -hmm. or whatever so they noticed that the hippocampus in homing pigeons was much bigger than the hippocampus in regular pigeons who yeah. don't race and go home um, and so that alerted them to that ah, now, so are they is... separate breeds or is it is it is just know, one pigeon trained so. I have no idea that's a really brilliant question I have no idea but I think yeah I think homing pigeons are just trained but I would imagine they breed them then as well mm -hmm. but I, I would imagine they originally came from you know just regular pigeons but that's something I must look up but anyway um so that kind of led to them realizing, OK, that's involved in spatial navigation. And similarly, there's lots of fab um, uh, little stories about, you know, birds that hide their food in the wintertime. You know, it grows when they um, when they actually have to, uh, you know, hide food for storage yeah. so that they can spatially map it, you know, know where to go back to. Anyway, go back to the the um, the London taxi driver. She decided that she wanted to do sort of a similar study in humans. So basically, she um, compared the brains of London taxi drivers with the brains of London bus drivers. So the difference being that London bus drivers just go around the same route every single day, whereas London taxi drivers have to learn an incredible amount of yeah. of uh, uh, maps. They really have to, you know, they, they train for years and they have to go around it. Anyway, the hippocampi, because uh, you have two of them, so that's the Latin and the plural, the hippocampi in London ta taxi drivers is bigger than those in um, uh, London bus drivers. And she went wow. on to do a whole load of... bus drivers have roots. They just have routes that they follow where the taxi drivers actually, you know, they're, they're challenging their brain. They have to keep learning those routes and keep new, using them. So so I'm just thinking there about the London taxi drivers. So I've been using a smartphone since 2011. Yeah. And I kind of, I've forgotten what it's like to have to remember things. Yeah. Because I have Google. Yeah. So even, even if I see... Jesus, because I, I was recounting a situation when I was about 20 and I was in a nightclub and I didn't have a, a smartphone and I heard a song that I loved. Or I'd heard a song that I loved and I'd heard it for the first time. And I remember having to write it down on my hand and then shielding my hand for the rest of the night because yeah. <laughs> I would never hear that song again. Yeah. There was no way to Google. There was nothing. There was yeah, no Shazam. Yeah, yeah. And it was alien to me to think that I had to do something like that because now... I'd have just pressed the button on my phone. It would have identified the song. Wouldn't have to worry about it. 
And I've been living my way in my life like this for quite some time now, for over a decade, where yeah. basically it's like, I don't have to remember that. My phone will do it. Yeah. I don't have to recall that phone. I used to remember phone numbers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I used to, I used to remember my bank account numbers. <laughs> yeah. You know, because um, I'm a lot older than you. So, like, um, I lived a longer life, um, uh, you know, with none but of That's like 12 things. digits. Yeah, 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 oh my yeah, God. yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. You, you knew everything. You knew everybody's phone number. You knew your bank account details. Um, loads of those numbers. And in fact, older people are better at remembering those things than than younger people are now. Um, so, what's that doing to our collective neuroplasticity? Or, okay, or the- no. So, so okay. So that's not impacting. Uh, what that's doing is, and I often get actually asked this question. You know, um, so basically. As regards to the use of devices, I mean, I outsource my memory all the time. Okay, is that um, what you call it? outsourcing? I memory? call it outsourcing memory. Wow. <laughs> I, because yeah. a piece of advice I actually give to people if they're feeling overloaded, um, uh, you know, or, or brain fog. A lot of people are feeling a lot of brain fog during the the pandemic. I say, look, outsource your memory to your devices. You know, the minute someone makes an appointment, you know, the minute you said to me, you know, we'll do two o'clock or whatever, I put it straight into my diary because then I don't have to remember it. So here's the thing. There is no problem with outsourcing your memory to uh, devices, provided you use the resources that you have freed up in your brain to do something else, to learn new things, to be creative, to do whatever. So basically what you want to do to have a really healthy brain and to optimize your brain performance is harness this neuroplasticity, okay? Mm-hmm. Bigger is better when it comes to your brain. And I mean, really in, in important ways, um, you know, say even in later life, if you were to get a disease, the pathology in your brain of something like dementia, Alzheimer's mm-hmm. disease, um, the more healthy brain you have, the longer you can resist uh, the impact of that disease on your brain. So the longer you can hold on to your cognitive functioning before uh, the symptoms that you you associate with dementia appear. So you want as many connections in your brain. You know, actually, if you're over the age of 30, your brain starts to shrink through mm-hmm. a process called atrophy. So you lose a little bit of brain volume every year. And then by the age of 60, that starts to accelerate. So if mm-hmm. your brain shrinks, you're cognitive capacity the ability of your brain to do all the things you want to do will suffer as well but now, can we fight this yes we can okay oh i sounded like a bama there yes we can <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah we can and that's what makes me so excited and passionate about what i do and about trying to tell people that so yes you can counteract that atrophy if you engage in things that promote uh brain health so one of those is Uh, harnessing neuroplasticity and that's why constantly learning things is absolutely brilliant for your brain now everybody tends to think when you say learning they think about academic learning Mm -hmm. and learning as a sort of something that you had to do in school that was awful and that's not the kind of learning I'm talking about although if you want to do academic learning that's perfectly fine but it can be learning anything you know musical instrument uh you know how to turn wood uh the lyrics of a song you mm-hmm. know just learning anything knitting doesn't and matter i find from that a passion is really important with that so from my experience if i'm passionate about something i'll consolidate that to my memory yeah so actually that passion that you're talking about uh, and i did a, a, a podcast episode on this because i am absolutely passionate about what you're talking about which is really curiosity mm-hmm. so in that oh, case okay. yeah. right so um 
it means something that you are intrinsically curious about, something that you just have a natural curiosity for. Learning is enhanced for that. So neuroplasticity is actually enhanced when you're naturally curious about something. So when you're naturally curious about, as you just said there, it's so easy to learn. You actually yeah. don't even have to put any effort into it. Okay. It's just fun. It's not even it's learning. It's just fun. And uh, yeah. well, it is learning because your brain is, 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 is actually growing those new connections. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing is, that's really exciting. And I said that in my, in my podcast, teachers take bloody note. The thing is, if you are naturally curious about something, the learning is enhanced. And then if you stop doing the thing that you're curious about and turn your attention to something that maybe you're less curious about, that enhanced learning continues for a period. So like, I think teachers should, you know, let kids explore whatever they're curious about for 10, 15 minutes and then teach them their theorems. Do you you know what I mean? Like harness, like we do an awful lot of stuff to suit a regular society instead of actually understanding how our brains work and then you know, harnessing or capitalizing that. Like teenage um, teenagers are, are, are a prime kind of example of society kind of trying to push square pegs into round holes. When you're mm-hmm. a teenager from puberty, uh, your brain goes through a second period of incredible uh, development. So the first period is from about the age of two to seven. So from puberty to up to about the age of 25, your brain is actually almost completely remodeled. Neuroplasticity is enhanced. It's a brilliant time to learn new stuff. That's why sort of academic stuff does work okay at that period of time. Yeah. Um, but it actually, it's remodeled from the back to the front and the front part of the brain is the latest to develop. And that's why um, teens... Um, are very vulnerable to taking risk. They're vulnerable to mental health issues because yeah. they they engage in the world from um, more from their um, emotional brain, which is unthinking and yeah. reflexive rather than uh, reflective. Um, so teens need a lot of minding, really. And I think teens need a lot more parenting than we're doing at the moment because their brain is incomplete and because they can't think rationally. And also the brain, while it's going through this period, doesn't actually learn from mistakes it doesn't learn from negative experiences so people will continue to make those same mistakes so they need kind of guidance and support but what i wanted to say there is um the our our natural rhythms our circadian rhythms you know when we're naturally awake is also related to when we're most alert and when we can better learn when we can take new information in etc so the teen brain is alert at different times to say the brain of someone like me who's in her 50s now. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, um, teens actually, um, they're, they're, they're wide awake in the evening time, you know, and, and um, you know, kind of afternoon is when they're they're sharpest and you know most teens want to stay up late and their parents are telling them to go to bed because they've got to get up for school in the morning the thing is the teenage brain is is should be sleeping first thing in the morning and school really shouldn't start till kind of about 11 o'clock do you know if you were to actually harness their natural um rhythms so you're kind of forcing their brain to do stuff when it's not um the right time for that brain um to be doing it and school hours probably exist just to accommodate capitalism. Just because to accommodate, the parents, yeah, yeah, pretty much everything. To work. Yeah, it's yeah. just to accommodate a society rather than actually to kind of work with, um, 
work with our natural uh, rhythms. And you got to understand, these things were set up before we really understood how the brain works. Like it's really only in the last 30 years or so that we actually have the technology to uh, understand a functioning brain. So like there's MRI, functional MRI scanners, um, the electrophysiology that I did, uh, diffusion tensor imaging. They, these can all see the brain while it's actually engaging in activities. And when I say see the brain, you know, they can, you know, people, phys physicists and all those really, really smart people can, um, you know, they can make pictures and maps from the electrical signals. So you can kind of see which parts of the brain are firing when you engage in different activities. Uh, like you even have things like place cells, which are fascinating. They only fire when you're in a particular part of the room. Like it's just, what? yeah, Google it, folks, right? Um, yeah, if you Google, there's videos online of place cells and, and literally there are particular cells that, that, that fire when you go to a particular part of the room. What are the parameters of this part of the room that makes the brain do this um, is it your personal just, relationship with that part yeah of the yeah it's you know and okay. then so the brain really is just all about patterns that's why you know routine is critical for mental health yeah um, it really is the brain loves patterns and it functions uh, it functions really well when you have regular routines there's kind of there's kind of a fine line between so a lot of people with you know when they're giving advice about mental health will say you know, um, we're living too much of our lives on autopilot and we need to be more present in the moment. And that is mm -hmm. really true. Present mindedness is absolutely a brilliant way to keep anxiety and depression at bay because anxiety and depression. And, and why is that? Why is that? Well, anxiety and depression, number one, are all about um, imagining futures that might happen or, you know, ruminating over things that happened in the past. Yeah. If you're present in the moment, you can't do that. Yeah. And um Again, a lot of people talk about present mindedness and mindfulness and all that sort of thing. Personally, I've struggled, always struggled to meditate and do that sort of thing. My brain is just like crazy on fire all the time. However, that's not the only way you can be present minded. It's not the only form of meditation, you know, that thing that, you know, where people sit and yeah. breathe. If you, like you said there, say when you're passionate about something or, you know, maybe your music, you know. You're talking all, about creative flow. It's when you're, yeah, when you're in the flow, when you're lost. Yes. So what I say to people is find something that you absolutely love, something that you have fun doing, where if somebody was, you, you can lose hours, do you know? Where yeah, you, yeah, yeah. You don't know what time, you, you, you can even miss lunch. Do you know that kind of way? Because you're I just. I need to ask you about that, right? Because that's a huge yeah. part of my job and my life is. Yeah. So, and aren't you lucky? Because that's really, really brilliant for you. I, you know, I'm, it's it's it's. I swear to God, it's the dragon that I chase. It's it's the the actual the meaning of my life, yeah. and what determines my happiness is the creative flow. Yeah, and that's whether I'm writing my books or making music or whatever. But like, especially when I'm writing a short story, right? I could literally spend four hours and. I feel as if I've left the country. I'm, I'm just not present. But you have. That's a lovely description because that's what I'm trying to say to people is. But you know, what is that like? What, like? Two things. Well, like particularly during lockdown, a lot of people are, are, are stuck, even if they love people, you know, like a lot of the people we love, you kind of might spend a couple of hours every evening with them and the weekends. And now yeah. you're 24 seven with them. Anybody is irritating mm -hmm. after that period of time. And what I say to people is, look, you always have this room in your head. It's a room that nobody else can go into and you can lose yourself in there. And I really believe this kind of sounds a bit like an oxymoron. You've got to lose yourself to find yourself. 
that's yeah. and that's what I think you have found. You're blessed. You find yourself when you're in that flow. I'm very fortunate. I love what I do, you know, and mm. even when I'm talking like something like this or giving my talks, I'm in my flow. Do you know what I mean? I mm-hmm. can't think of anything else. And, and my brain is, you know, just making connections and, and really enjoying it. So the really interesting thing about this um, is so, you know, the way you sort of said you're chasing that dragon, you know, yeah. you're chasing, you know, to find that. Actually, sometimes if you stop chasing it, you'll find it much easier. So the reason. Oh, yeah. The reason I'll say yeah. that is, OK, so we're kind of a bit. Um, how would I put it? Uh and this is kind of hard to use language because um, it's kind of complicated, complex in that we think we think we exist independent of our brain in, in you know, that's the illusion the brain kind of yeah. creates. But the brain actually you are your brain. That's it. Full stop. It creates you. Wow. Um, from lots of different information, um, from your own thinking, from what other people have said to you over the years, from and- What's consciousness within all of that? Yeah, so I think consciousness is um, our, it's our our thinking. It is our awareness of who we are or who we think we are. It is the stories that we tell ourselves, I think. Um, Consciousness, you see, the thing is, essentially we kind of have three brains um now they're interconnected um Mm -hmm. but they're frequently described as three brains because they evolved um you know over millions of years um so the first part of our brain to evolve um was the reptilian brain it's the brain stem so that's the part of the brain that keeps you alive so the brain stem is the evolutionary the oldest part of the brain and it is unconscious and it okay. carries out all of the activities oh, that keep wow. us alive. Okay. So breathing and stuff. breathing, heart wow, rate, okay. um, yeah. digestion, all of those things, right? So if you have an injury to your brain stem, you're dead pretty much, unless okay. you have access to a life support machine. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's critical. Now that's down at the stem. It actually connects to your spinal cord. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I can put an image of this up if people want afterwards on my social media or whatever. But um, then the next part of the brain to evolve is uh, what we call the limbic brain or the limbic system and what most people will refer to as the emotional brain. So that's what you're talking about. That's where your amygdala is. That's where the center of your fear response and your emotions are. And it is also unthinking, unconscious, reflexive for a lot of the yeah. things, right? Particularly the amygdala is reflexive. Then on top of that, so to see that limbic part of the brain, you'd actually have to turn the brain upside down. Okay? okay. It's inside. So then wrapped around that on the top is the crinkly part of the brain that most of us are used to thinking about when we think of a brain, brain that horrible beige crinkly bit. Yeah. And actually, I'd say to your um, to your listeners, Google Brainbow. Okay, like rainbow, but brainbow. And you will see some amazing images of the human brain from the cell perspective. They are like um, Monet paintings. They are really beautiful. And what they are is proteins used, different color dyes used um, to to show different um, uh, brain cells. And that's what I would prefer people to think about when they think about the brain rather than that crinkly beige mask, because that just like looks sort of dead. Well, it Mm -hmm. is. You know, it only looks like that because it's been preserved in formaldehyde but that crinkly part of your brain that's the most recent to evolve that is the thinking part of your brain that is in 
involved in uh, language, vision processing, uh, movement, uh, you know, conscious movement, um, decision making, planning, organizing, all those things that make us human. And the very front part of that, the frontal lobes is the most complex part. It was the very last to evolve. It's the last part to develop. So in the teenage brain, it's the part that can assess risk. Uh, It's kind of connected to every other critical thinking. It's connected to every other part of your brain. So we call it the executive controller because it kind of has oversight of everything. So say, for example, if you talk about that fight or flight. So if yeah. if you. Um, so we say anxiety. That's what I want to know. It, so it, anxiety like, comes from yeah. stress. So, yeah, I'm going to. So if I if do you mind if I just sort of start at the beginning, go for you it. know, with the yeah. stress bit and then that will explain sort of the anxiety. So basically you hear a loud bang. OK. Yeah. And without thinking, you'll either jump, scream, drop to the ground, depending or whatever. You know, it's a noise and, and you just have this. Um, uh, reflexive response. Okay, now that noise or whatever the threat is, um, the information, the sensory information, so the sound, Mm -hmm. uh, visual if it is visual, whatever, smell if it's the smell of something burning, you know, that sensory information comes into your amygdala, the fear center, via two routes, a short route and a a short route and a long route. Okay. So the first goes directly to your amygdala, uh, the unthinking part of your brain so that you can jump out of the way or whatever of an oncoming car. It just saves your life. That's it. You know, you don't have time to think about saving your life. Like, just do it. And literally, that's what the amygdala does. So then the slower route, the longer route, it eventually goes to the amygdala, but it goes via the frontal lobes, the critical thinking part of your brain. Yeah. And that part of your brain, as I said, has connections to all the rest of, of, of your brain and actually all of the other relevant information. And it then sends a message to the amygdala, which is either, look, you know what, um, shut off that stress response. It was only a car backfiring. There's nothing yeah. to worry about. We need to, you know, stop the release of cortisol. And the brain has a fabulous feedback loose loop that does that. will shut off the cortisol response and you can gradually bring your heart rate and down. What's the cortisol business? Yeah, so that's sorry, I should explain that. So once um once the stress response is kicked off by any sort of threat, and actually I should explain that threat doesn't even have to be real. It can be yeah. imagined. So you could be worrying about something and it yeah. will kick off the same neurophysiological stress response. So it starts in your brain and basically sends messages um, to your adrenal glands to release adrenaline. And then for cortisol, um, which is the main stress hormone to be released. Now you you need cortisol. It isn't just released when you are in a stressful situation. Cortisol is released first thing in the morning uh, to wake up when you wake up it's the yeah. it's the hormone that actually allows you kind of get up out of bed after slumber so you know your cortisol receptors all over your body so it, you know it's useful it's not like a bad thing um, and and it's not a bad thing anyway because you need it you, you need it to escape a mug or, or whatever yeah. so the cortisol is released and basically what happens is um on unessential functions in your body um are, are sort of shut down. So things like your immune response, your digestion, 
Yeah. So that everything can go into. So your heart rate will speed up. Yeah. Your lungs will expand so you can take in more oxygen. Uh, you'll start to sweat or whatever. But basically, um, you know, glucose will be produced into your limbs so that you can run or fight, mm-hmm. whatever. So everything is and you go into high alert, you know, like yeah. your senses become heightened uh, and it's a life preserving thing. Um, so basically, if there's no need for it, then your thinking brain says, you know, shut this off. And, you know, it's got this lovely system where it can shut it down or it can say, actually, no, that was a gun. Right. Stay down on the ground. Look around. See if there's, you know, whatever. And we'll get you through that situation. And interestingly, uh, memory in the hippocampus is enhanced when you have an acute stress response. Now, where this becomes problematic and where it can ultimately lead to anxiety is when stress becomes chronic. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of us have been living through chronic stress during the pandemic. You yes. know, the, you know, aside from just the fear of catching uh, the virus, all the other stressors that have been increased, you know, stress. The uncertainty, about, the sheer uncertainty. Uncertainty. So uncertainty is, is you know, fundamental to anxiety. Like yeah. it really is. And, you know, it's related to control. Um, so, you know, the perception of stress is occurs when we feel we don't have the capacity to cope with the challenge that we are facing, right? So basically, when stress becomes chronic, what happens is, over time, neuroplasticity is increased in your amygdala, okay? So your fear response becomes enhanced. Your amygdala actually gets bigger. It is, unfortunately, decreased in your hippocampus. So your ability to learn and remember are decreased and your hippocampus starts to shrink. It is also decreased in your frontal lobes. So your ability to think critically and reflectively um, are uh, reduced. Um, And so over time, then, you are acting in a constant state of threat. You are on high alert you see threat even where there isn't any. Yeah. Um, your emotional brain is just ruling the roost. So instead of your thinking brain calming down your emotional brain, if it's fired off, your emotional brain is pretty much shutting up your thinking brain. Um, and then if that persists very long, you know, that can become sort of a full blown anxiety um, uh, where, you know, your whole life is really ruled by your um, anxious thinking and your perceptions of threat. And um, on top of that, stress and sleep are inextricably linked. They have yeah. um, um they both interfere with each other in that when you're critically stressed or chronically stressed, um, you have too much cortisol. and it, you, you get night terrors and shit, night terrors. Just yeah. go everything going round and round and round. Yeah. And, I, you know, when it happens to me, I can feel it in my fingertips. And, yes. You know, I feel like I have too much energy in my legs, you know. Um, basically, my body is ready to go running somewhere and I can't sleep. Um, and so... The less sleep you have, the more susceptible you are to stress. And the more stress you have, the less sleep you have. Um, and so, so you It's a have, toxic feedback loop all oh, around. It's a toxic feedback loop. And the thing is, though, as well, what's really interesting is that not everybody is... So that stress-sleep uh, relationship isn't equal across all individuals. So there's a thing called sleep reactivity. Mm-hmm. And that just refers to how much stress impairs your sleep 
right? Mm -hmm. So uh, I have high, if you have high sleep reactivity, that means that when you're stressed, your sleep is going to be disrupted. Um, And then someone with low stress reactivity, like my husband, even if the things were falling down around him, he can sleep. Um, It doesn't impact on his ability to sleep. It doesn't mean that he isn't stressed when he is awake, but it doesn't impact on his ability to sleep. Now, women are more susceptible to are more likely to have high sleep reactivity um, people who have a family history of insomnia are also more likely to have high sleep reactivity and there mm-hmm. does seem to be some sort of genetic element as well and then people who have high sleep reactivity are also more likely to be diagnosed with anxiety and depression Wow. So, um, and then also more likely to go on to develop insomnia disorder. So that's why one of the things in, in, in both my books, I have full chapters on sleep and why you need sleep and why your brain needs sleep and why it is critical for it to be one of the things that you prioritize in your life. You know, if you care about your mental health, you've really got to work on getting sufficient high quality sleep every night it will you know if you and I mean I know that sounds like saying yeah but I can't sleep but it really is about investing time and working on getting to a place where you can sleep it's not going to be an easy journey but there's tons of different things that you can do like I, I found that phones, Sabina. Like since I've had a smartphone, I haven't. I've, I've been. I haven't been getting the sleep I used to get. Simply yeah. having a phone that I look into before bed no, excites no, me too much. No, stop it! Stop it instantly! Right? There's simple rituals, really. Is um, that a straight up red flag for bad that's sleep? That's a straight up red flag for bad okay. sleep. And the reason it's a red flag. Flag. So you're saying it. It. Um. You know, stimulates you the stuff that you're looking yeah. at. But actually, it's the the blue. That's part of it but the main thing is the blue light that comes out of your phone um, and it it, it suppresses melatonin which is um, a chemical in your brain that kind of calls you to sleep so essentially if you're looking at a blue light before you go to bed your brain thinks it's daytime okay and it's not getting the message that it should go asleep. So yeah. look, there's no, there's no data to say when you should, you know, what's the exact time you should stop using your blue light. But what I say to people is, look, switch out, switch off any blue light emitting devices for an hour before your bedtime. Wow. Right. And, and come here, is, is there, I've heard that there's a relationship between poor quality sleep when you're younger and then developing things like Alzheimer's and dementia yeah. when you're older is that yeah, true? Yeah there's a huge relationship between sleep and dementia um, we don't know which way it goes around but poor sleep so poor sleep is critical for learning and memory okay so when you take information in during the day it goes into that a temporary repository um, uh, the hippocampus right and that has limited resources so that's why when you get towards the end of the day and someone starts telling you something you say sorry can't take it in <laughs> tell yeah. me tomorrow I need to go sleep it's full basically okay so um, when you go to sleep the, so you basically cycle through five 90 minute cycles if you're getting you know a full night's sleep yeah. and through each of those cycles you have non-REM sleep and REM sleep in but 
but of different proportions in each cycle. So at the start of the night, you've more non-REM sleep than REM sleep. But by the time you get to your last cycle, you've much more REM sleep than non-REM sleep. So that's your dream sleep. So that's when you're getting most of your dreaming. So at the start of the night, we see electrical activity between the hippocampus and the frontal lobes that I talked to you about, the executive controller. And what we believe is happening there is that your frontal lobes are filtering the information that you took in during the day. And they're saying, yeah, no, dump that, dump that. Oh, yeah, we need to make that a memory. Dump that, keep that, keep that, right? Because we we can't keep everything that we take in. Your brain has a limited capacity. So then a little bit later in the night, we see... um, I'm making hand movements here um, because you, got, you, you can't see me. But basically, um, you know, you don't have a place in your brain where memories are stored. They're stored in electrical patterns. OK, wow. so those patterns, we see patterns of electric electrical activity going across various areas areas of your brain and that's that new information starting to be made consolidated into a memory and actually one little tip if you want to really make sure that you remember stuff engage as many senses as as you possibly can that's something that's beaten out of us when we go to school if you look at any toddler they explore the world with every sense yeah they taste stuff they touch it they roll in it you know they smell it they do everything and then they go to school and they're told love atrasana you know cross cross yeah. your hands sit down sit still and just listen um and so you're minimizing um you know it, it's a very like the, the more senses you engage when you're living in the world makes it richer but it also enriches uh, the memory and so then when that's been sort of bedded down in your brain at night it's been bedded across various different senses and so actually even if you go on in later life to develop something like dementia and your language centers are are damaged and not functioning you still have access to those memories via your sensory other senses you know and um, so it's really important I, I really encourage people to engage and also it's a you know it makes your life richer anyway so one little question i'm going to ask before i get back to the other part was so i get asked so much about sleep hygiene it's it's yeah. my, my listeners to my podcast it's one thing they're very concerned about because everyone's using their phone and i think most people are aware that the phone is what's messing with their sleep now I've been doing this for nearly 10 years, so that's now, I'm, I'm concerned, we'll say. Have I done damage to my brain, or can, can I, if I improve my sleep hygiene now, can I... Oh, yeah. Can I fix it? Yeah, yeah, of course. The brain is really resilient. Um, So it has this other capacity as well called, um, uh, I, I, I kind of, I like to describe it like, if you adopt a brain healthy life, style it's like investing in brain capital that you can cash in at some point in the future to cope with or compensate for challenges in life and that challenge could be something like covid (laughs) and the pandemic it could be aging it could be a brain injury or it could be a disease like dementia in later life or a disease like multiple sclerosis that hits people in earlier life right and so what we know from research is that that resilience so some people can have alzheimer's disease but not have the symptoms they are resilient to the disease and that resilience is is linked to lifestyle factors okay so they're the pillars of what so so you know my books are about brain brain health and about beating brain fog and the fundamental principles principles of brain health 
you know, getting good quality sleep is a primary, is, is, is one of the key ones. So it is critical. It is important that people are worried about it because uh, at least that might spur them to take action. The World Health Organization uh, has declared long before the pandemic a sleep loss epidemic with one in three people not getting enough sleep. And actually, since the pandemic, apparently there's been a 20% rise in the prescription of sleeping tablets, which well, is not something that's um, a great idea because you do don't Do you think get that's because of increased sleep. anxiety or just people being lethargic because they're not moving? I think it's a combination of things, to be perfectly on- honest. Yes, I think stress, the chronic stress is going to impair sleep. I think um, uh, the loss of routine is going to interfere with that. Um, I think if people have lost jobs, understimulation is going to uh, interfere yeah. with that. Exercise or lack of exercise um, is going to interfere with that. So it's going to be multiple factors. But most of the brain healthy stuff kind of covers everything. But if you go back to the to the sleep thing, so light is absolutely managing your exposure to light is a critical way to um, improve your sleep. So the minute you wake in the morning, open your shutters or curtains or whatever you have. If it's the winter time in Ireland and it's dark, turn on a white light, okay? Mm -hmm. Not a blue light, don't open your laptop or whatever. So you've got to understand our brain evolved over millions of years. We only have electric light for a couple of hundred years. We only have these devices for like, so our brain is looking for signals from light to get a a proper sleep routine. So I'm saying to people as well, and this might be something to do with the pandemic as well and the disruption is sleep, is that people are working from home and some people aren't leaving their homes at all. So you need to get out in daylight. I say to people a minimum of half an hour, but like, you know, more if you can, okay? And then in the evening time, you gotta take control of the electrical light in your house. So I would suggest that from about eight o'clock in the evening, dim your lights. If you have a dimmer switch or, you know, put on lamps, turn off the overhead light. If you're on a budget, like I picked up a couple of lamps and duns the other day for 10 euro. You know, Mm -hmm. they don't, you know, it's not going to break the bank. It really isn't. But it will really improve your sleep if you start to lower those lights. Candles are lovely. Candles are lovely. They're also really relaxing if you... Uh, you know, have a nice one that's a calming smell. So that's another thing then. And then when you go to bed, you're going to make sure that your room is really as dark as it possibly can be. So another thing that I suggest to people is often one of the last things that people do before they go to bed is brush their teeth. They're tired, you go up the stairs, they turn out the bright light in the bathroom and brush their teeth and wake up the brain. So what I say to people is, look, so kind of in in my new book, I have like um, a whole week, you know, that's just devoted to sleep, sleep rituals that you can gently introduce into your life to help you um, sleep well. And one of the suggestions I say is you start a wind down routine from about an hour before bed. Okay, so put the devices away and go upstairs, get into your PJs, your comfies or whatever, and brush your teeth then. Okay. Yeah, you're done. Don't eat anything after that. Anyway, it's not good. Eating late at night will upset your sleep as well. Then come back downstairs. As you said, light your candles or you have your lower light or whatever. Listen to relaxing music. Uh, read a paperback book. Do you, do you know what I mean? Or that's important. Just talk R- literally, to that's a huge mm. thing I've been doing. Going back to an actual physical book rather than my Kindle or reading yeah, a book on my laptop. Yeah, yeah. A piece of paper. Or, or have a bath or, you know, 
indulge yourself by putting some cream on yourself or, yeah, do you yeah, know, yeah. just look, think about it. If you have children and you're trying to induce a routine, you know, you calm them down. You ca- you don't take them from running wild around the house and say, now go to bed. Mm-hmm. You have a wind down routine for the child. And sometimes that involves having a bath. Yeah. Do you know, whatever. So really make that eye. And, and, and it's nice. It's nice to take time out to just do some of that nice sort of restorative stuff. It helps calm everything, everything down a bit. Um, another thing that's really important that a lot of people aren't aware of. So temperature is almost as important or as important as light when it comes to getting good sleep. So given the kind of climate we live in, you know, a lot of people will turn the heat on in the bedroom before they go up or they may yeah. even have electric blankets and oh, I want to be nice and cozy in my bed and, and you know, they want to make the room really warm. Actually, you need to turn your heat off from about an hour before you go to bed. And Sabina, what about, like we're mentioning phones there and the light, but yeah. also most of us when we're on our phone, we're looking at social media. Yeah, yeah. So and that's social the, media is yeah. all about high arousal emotions, whether yeah. it's making you angry or anxious or whatever. So cut that out. And similarly, so a lot of people will say, you know, oh, God, I'm so wrecked after work. or I'm so stressed. Can't wait to go home when we even used to go, you know, when we had a workplace to go to or whatever. Yeah. Can't wait to go home and watch Netflix and chill. Now, the research shows that even just two hours watching Netflix or some other show or program or whatever actually increases anxiety and depression rather than reduces them and just think of the nature of the stuff you're watching obviously you could choose carefully like so I would tend to if I don't watch very much television at all to be perfectly honest but if I did and if I did watch a switch off I'll I'll watch things that kind of give me comfort maybe like homes being decorated or you know because I kind of like that stuff um or listen to a nice podcast. I listen, I listen to, to a nice podcast. Yeah. They're brilliant. I I, I talk about them, uh, you know, in, in my book. And they're a great way to send you sleep as well. I know that sounds awful, but I have fallen asleep while listening oh, to Jesus, a Jesus, I get people listening to a full eight hours of my podcast and they're not even awake. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but that's good. You know, if it kind of, you know, if it kind of gets you asleep. But the temperature thing is your core body temperature has to drop by one degree before you can actually go into sleep. Mm-hmm. So if you've got a hot room, you've no chance of that happening. So um, really, you want to be thinking of a a cool room. And one way to do that is actually counterintuitively to have a hot bath. Um, Okay. Because when you step out of a hot bath into the cool air of the bathroom, um, the heat is drawn from your core to your extremities uh, to heat them up. So that actually will reduce your core temperature because it's your core temperature you want to... um, you want to reduce before you go to sleep. Um, so that's kind of another another sort of tip that people aren't aware of. Exercise is a brilliant way to boost sleep, uh, but not near bedtime. Absolutely nowhere near, um, nowhere near bedtime, um, uh, you know, but um, yeah, so no, it's critical. There's one thing I wanted. So just to take it back to something you were speaking about earlier. So when you were speaking about um the amygdala and the emotional part of the brain and yes. how when when we're stressed how the emotional part of the brain can take over yes so i when i was like 1920 i had pretty bad anxiety which then developed into agoraphobia so i was right so you were living in my room for like a year and oh my god the thought of like being in like a pub or a supermarket yeah it was just like not a not a hope i'm gonna get an anxiety attack yeah but i don't live that like that's a distant memory yeah I went to psychotherapy, but also what was very important for me 
cognitive behavioral therapy and how I used it myself yes. to challenge my beliefs and change my behavior and yeah. then to basically become a person who's mentally healthy and doesn't yeah. exist with unhealthy anxiety. Can you explain? So that took me about a year. Yeah. And the most important thing for me was whatever about changing my beliefs about, you know, the supermarket isn't going to give me anxiety. It was when I actually went and changed my behavior and started going to the supermarket and gradually exposing myself that that that's when I truly felt change. Yeah. Now, for me, that was all very abstract because I'm looking at it from a psychology point of view. I'm not thinking about my brain. Yeah. Can you tell me as as a neuroscientist, what's happening there in the physical brain? Yeah, so basically your brain really operates on patterns, okay? Um, And that's what our behaviours are, you know, and that's actually who we are. We are patterns of behaviour, you know, and and when they change, we change. Do you know what I mean? Um, uh, So, and and so does your brain. So, kind of to explain a little bit, I, I have to explain that your brain it only weighs 2% of your body, right? But yeah. it consumes about 25% of the oxygen and nutrients that you take in, at, at, at circulating at any one time. That's your brain's fuel, okay? Yeah. Now, um, it's the thinking part of your brain, the crinkly part, the part that develops last, is the highest consumer of brain fuel, okay? Yeah. So anything, and you know it yourself, engaging in any of those activities that require you to solve problems, to think critically. You'd be to, starving. And we, mu- and we must go back to your creativity because I do want to answer that. Um, uh, yeah, so it, it really uses a lot of resources. So your brain, in order to be efficient and effective, constantly scans your behaviours for patterns that it can automate. Oh, wow, to save energy. Yeah, to save energy. Holy fuck. Yeah, so wow. it autom- it automates behavior uh, and hands over responsibility for those patterns of behavior to uh, your emotional brain, to a oh part of it God. called the um, basal ganglia. Okay. And so basically then your thinking brain, it just, uh, it does, it's like, like a bookend. It kind of chicks it, you know. Checks in at the beginning. Yeah, that's that behavior. Basal ganglia will do it. And the checks in at the end. Yeah, that worked fine. Okay. So basically, pre-pandemic, 40% of our behaviors were automated. They were our habits. For most people, you know, it could be, say they get up at 7 a.m. It could be 10 a.m. before they actually consciously, you know, really engage in a thinking behavior because they get up, they pee, they brush their teeth, shower, breakfast, commute, whatever. It's all pretty much done on autopilot. Now, a lot of people, when they're talking about mental health, say we live too much of our lives on autopilot. That's probably true, but it is essential that we live some of our lives on autopilot and about 40% is pretty good. And that allows you to use use your brain for those other more complex activities for your writing your music or whatever so you need routine and habits that's one of the reasons people have been feeling really stressed or their brain fog they just feel they're not working possibly properly is that like a year ago just one day everybody was told to go home and figure out how to work. And people just dropped all of their routines and most people didn't engage in any regular behavior so they might get up at 10 o'clock today seven o'clock tomorrow they might homeschool for an hour first thing in the morning and so that's exhausting so that's exhausting and your brain can't see any patterns to automate it can't fix the problem why am I tired and I'm not leaving the house? When I'm, why am I tired when I'm doing less than I used to do? Well, you're tired wow. because you are not engaging in routines. So the solution is simple. 
just reintroduce all your routines. And I'm saying to people, introduce a fake commute because it's really important to bookend that work, you know, to separate work from home in some sort of way. So that's a really, really sort of simple solution. So um, now going back to the patterns. So you have patterns of thinking. Okay. Yeah. But they're like those habits. They were just habits. So something would trigger and you'd go down that that thinking, you know, oh, I can't leave the house because of this. Oh, yeah. I can't do this because of and that. And then oh, before you know it, I literally am I'm trapped in my room. You're trapped in, but you're trapped in a behavior. So what I think is really liberating about that is you go, OK, so that means I need to just re I need to create a new habit of thinking. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Now, creating a new habit is effortful because you have to actively. So even if you're talking about something like, you know, you want to stop, say you eat chocolate after lunch every day. Yeah. OK. It's probably been an automated thing. You just reach for the bar of chocolate or you go down to the shop and buy the bar of chocolate, whatever, after lunch. And it's unthinking and habit. So to break that, you have to very actively resist that chocolate, not go or replace what you do then with something else that's not eating the chocolate, like going for a run or whatever. And that's going to be really hard but only yeah. for a certain period of time now that period of time on average you know it, it really just depends on the activity if it's a simple thing that you haven't been doing for very long you know you can swap it out and put in a new habit relatively quickly if it's something that's been engraved for years it's going to take more work and longer but basically what you've got to do is actively engage your thinking brain that frontal lobes and you've got to inhibit your behavior actively you know and no. say don't eat that chocolate what I'd Sorry. like to raise with you there, right? So, so I I used, uh, so I did that via CBT. Yes, but exactly. I'm so that also is, conscious yeah. of the fact that that worked for me, and yes, it was difficult. But there are people, people who would have what would be described as we say personality disorders or things like yeah. that, where CBT failed them. Yes, the ability to simply make choices and repattern and think rationally, it doesn't work for these people or people uh, with trauma. Can you speak about that and what, I can what's speak going about on with the trauma. brain there? I, I think you're kind of moving into then a different realm when you talk about personality disorders, okay. etc. I'm talking about, um, you know, I'm talking about sort of the human brain in a sense in that is kind of we'll say for want of a better word, wired pretty much similarly, you know, going into, per, you know, those kind of things and schizophrenia, they're kind of a different realm. And in a way, they're outside my remit. And I would kind of rather not kind You'd, of go okay, there. OK, I get you. But I'm yeah. very happy to go there with the trauma. But what I would uh, like thing. to do is, could I ask a very basic question? Yeah. OK, and you can choose to, to not answer it if, if it's not. If Within that territory of mental, mental illness or schizophrenia or personality disorders, is there evidence that the physical brain is different um, or, or even the pathways are, are different? So, the, yeah, yeah. So the thing is, there can be. Um, but the thing is, what's really, you know, you see, it's our behaviours, our life experience that wire our brain, you know, that shape okay. it. So you, is it, are we a blank slate? No, we're not a blank slate. And that's a very good way to describe it. So obviously we have, you know, part of the brain that, you know, the occipital lobes at the back of your brain, they're involved in um, processing visual information. You know, on the left side, you have where your language centers are, etc. So like you, you have your basic 
brain, <laughs> so to speak. It's wired yeah. for all those kind of functions. But, you know, like an infant needs to be stimulated, do you know? Yeah. And between the ages of two and seven, the shaping of that brain will be influenced by the kind of stimulation or lack of stimulation okay. that it has had. Because part of this, so say when we go to the teenage brain, so it's remodeled. So what actually happens is, parts of the brain that have, not parts of the brain, but neurons and connections that haven't been regularly used are pruned away. Okay? okay, so there's growth and there's pruning. So it's really critical in those periods that you, you know, you engage with the world and that you develop like that you teach kids how to do various things or engage in various activities so that those those neurons aren't pruned away or that they are actually, you know, that you're shaping and enhancing kind of ones that will serve them well. Um, you, 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 you mentioned trauma there. Yeah, what does childhood trauma do to the brain, even into adulthood? Yeah, it's very, very relevant in that if you've been exposed to trauma, your stress response um, may be disproportionate um, compared to, um, you know, someone who's not been exposed yeah. to trauma. And, and what's so the difference between may... trauma and a bit of a fright or something? Mm. I think a bit of a fright is part of uh, the learning curve of yeah. life. You know, and I think that's why it's important as well that, you know, you know, people are exposed to experiences, you know, like, like I think it's mad sometimes, you know, where people just put, you know, oh, you're an adult now, 18 yes. out in the world. And actually, really, you know, you, you, you need to learn about challenges and, you know, bits of frights or taking risk um, in a safe way. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because your body will learn how to cope with those or what works or what doesn't, you know, in a safe space. I think, you know, a bit of a fright is, you know, your body, your brain will learn about that fright and it will it will remember that fright and it will know that, okay, don't do that again yeah. because that's what will happen or here's how you coped with that before. Um, and it may be that you had somebody who helped you cope with that fright, yeah. you know, helped you through it. Um, with a trauma or a severe trauma, you know, where you're talking about childhood yeah. abuse and, and those kind of things and kids navigating, navigating a childhood where, um, you know, uh, you know, maybe where there's mm -hmm. violence and they're learning to adapt their behavior so that they don't instigate you know, and, and, and I mean that in just the, you know, the, the sense, like not saying that there are any yeah. responsibility for, you know, for violence being, you know, brought on them, but they're learning how to, they're making connections. Their brain is making connections and going, okay, when he hit mum that time, it was because I yeah. did such and such. Do you know? Children have a way and to actually, blame that's themselves. Where, Yes, and that's where, you know, that's where actually sort of, um, sort of inappropriate links are made. You know, your brain's not infallible. Mm -hmm. It will it, it looks for patterns, but particularly your emotional brain, it's not very good at um, distinguishing patterns. So it'll often make incorrect links. Yeah. OK, so your thinking brain is very good at, at connecting patterns, but your emotional brain um, isn't necessarily. And so you can make these silly um 
you can make these silly connections. Like, you know, if you take a simple example, like a, a goalkeeper, you know, maybe saved six penalties when he had his green socks okay. on. You know, the green socks yeah. have nothing to do with that, <laughs> but they will want to wear the green lucky yeah. socks or, or, or whatever, you know. So there's, we all do those kind of um, erroneous connections. When you have had trauma as a child, your stress response is 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 going to be activated, you know, in a different way and, and um, not, you know, it either you, you will have, a stress response much sooner you'll have it to you know things that maybe other people wouldn't I mean I know of people um actually even you have have a relative who kind of grew up in um you know kind of one of those institutions Mm -hmm. and and um uh like I speak very loudly because both of my parents um, were deaf, yeah. not totally deaf, but they they had very, very poor hearing. Um, and like she always she, she kind of actually literally kind of jump back from my wow. voice would make me feel very guilty, you know. But that loud noise was kind of, you know, a, a bit of a trigger kind of for her. So um, everybody will be different. And I think also people who have been exposed to trauma most probably have post-traumatic stress disorder as well. So it's a disordering of the trauma. And I and the reverse can happen too, I believe, you know, where um, uh, the stress response becomes suppressed, do you know, and they actually don't react, um, you know, to things that you would ordinarily expect someone to react to. Um, I think these things can be worked on. And I think people, you know, who have those, um, you know, kind of issues would do very well to work uh, with someone who specializes in trauma. So say you did CBT, yeah. I'm sure you did it with someone who, you know, really had a good understanding yeah. around anxiety. Yeah. Um, and I think it's important that if you suspect, you know, that your your anxiety or whatever other issues that you may have are a consequence of trauma, that it is important to work with someone who understands that. That doesn't mean, and I also think it's very, I think it's, it's you know, for me, you know, that's why therapy, when you said CBT, for me, the only therapy that is of value is therapy that empowers you to change yeah. your life in positive ways. I do not approve of, and I'm quite happy to say this, therapy that creates dependence where you need your therapist in order to survive, where you have a lifelong relationship with your therapist. To me, that's just making money um, out of you. It is not empowering you, you know, and I think a good therapist will, you know, acceptance and commitment therapy, um, you know, can be a very helpful form of of therapy you know it's accepting you know the certain behaviors that you engage in what you have to work on and then committing to change them through very much what you're talking about changing your thinking changing your behaviors and eventually your patterns in your brain will change and what's really important to note while I say that is whilst you can replace old habits you know um, you know whilst you can introduce new helpful healthy habits um, the old habits will never go away Okay, they are always there. It is important. I have to work on this every day. I always say that I'm I'm someone who used to have mental health issues. And now I live my life as a mentally healthy person. But especially over the pandemic, all patterns have come back every single day. I got to work on it. 
Yeah, yeah. Those old patterns are there. Now, it makes sense from, a, you know, just a brain performance perspective. Like, say you have to wear, say you wore lace-up yeah. shoes to work before the pandemic, right? When you learn how to tie a lace as a child, it's really yeah. difficult. It's a really cognitively demanding activity, okay? It's resource-heavy. But then you learn how to do it with habit, uh, without thinking, okay? It would not make sense after this year that you would have to relearn how to yeah. tie your shoelaces. You might be a bit rusty, but the habit will just like, come back. I'm scared back. of relearning so small kind of... talk. Seriously, <laughs> I've, I've met so few strangers. Yeah. I haven't. Sim- look, the only strangers right. I meet are in a shop. And when I'm in a shop, the anxiety is so high. I can't people. hear them with the mask ah, on. Poor thing. So I'm, I'm literally, yeah. I'm, I'm worried about small talk, spontaneous small talk. And as well, I'm going to have to, like it took a lot of work for me to become a person who can gig in front of a thousand people and I'm going to have to go yeah. back out and gig in front of a thousand people but I think for the moment there's no point oh, in know. worrying about yeah. it like worry serves exactly. no purpose because it's not whatsoever. happening right now deal with it because it's not happening yeah. right now so kind of deal with it you know um, and when the anxiety yeah, steps so the in I, I underestimate my ability to cope it's always the case because yes, I know that, when it does happen what I do say to myself is fuck it whatever happens I, I can the best I can expect to myself is to cope I will cope Yes. So there's, oh, sorry, just hit my mic. Um, there's there's two things there. So just to say to people in terms of giving useful kind of practical, uh, uh, you know, advice, the thing is that old habits are more likely to return if you have poor sleep or you're going through a chronically stressful period. Wow. So being alert to that um, is more important. And a lot of us have experienced that, you know. And, and the funny thing is, and you know, ch- we stopped change will all bring our, that in, won't it? Change is, is often a big Yes, trigger. yeah, change is quite yeah. challenging, you know. Um, but the thing is, you know, whilst we all dropped those habitual behaviours, the routines that we had during the day, <laughs> most of us created new routines in the evening that weren't really very good for us, like saying it's five o'clock, I'm yes. having a G&T, you know. And unfortunately, those habits, the brain is so desperate for patterns, those it was, it's scanning and your brain does not um, make value judgments about your patterns of behaviour. It's just looking for Do you know why I think that happened? Now, this is just a little theory that I have. When lockdown happened, the only behavioural context that we had for lockdown was the few days around Christmas. That's it. And what do you do at Christmas? That's when you're allowed to drink and stay stay up late late and eat a full tin of roses. But then it's like you're doing it for a month because it's like, sure, it's fucking Christmas. (laughs) All the shops are closed. I well, there you go. There you go. Great minds think alike. That's Is my it? personal theory on this as well. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I actually said, I do a good bit of radio and I actually said it on, well, it was Sean O'Rourke then, you know, that's what happened, you know, and I actually said, so I was on in the early days of the pandemic, giving advice on how people could cope with the stress. Because if you go back, like we've kind of adapted yeah. a bit. If you go back to those early days, was everyone terrifying. was fucking Jesus okay and they were eating up every piece of news and, were, and, and oh the my toilet God, roll so many... people going buying too much toilet roll <laughs> but even speaking <laughs> to people I would speak to someone and they had genuine true terror in their voice because there's a pandemic um, I wanted to talk to you about Go curiosity because you did ask me about that about uh, your creativity flow. not your yeah. curiosity but create the creative flow so I think sometimes that's when I started into that sort of ugh, sort of hard bit to talk about the consciousness because I don't like to talk about the mind yeah. um, 
because I think it's unhelpful. I think it's an unnecessary middleman. Mm-hmm. It's too, it's too iffy. What, what you know? What what is it? You know, I much prefer to just talk about the brain behavior, and that includes thinking as a behavior. Um, but our sense of self, whatever that is, that's kind of consciousness. Yeah. Really, is the, is is our sense of who we are, and it's just a, all the stories that we tell ourselves or the information that we've taken in from other people that you know build up to kind of who we are um that sense of self we sort of give much more credit to that than it kind of deserves in a way okay so when we want to solve a problem or when you want to write a song or do something really creative or whatever you work really really hard to do that Mm -hmm. okay now in a way particularly when it comes to creativity and insight, um, you would be better trusting your brain a little more. So there's two two things that you can do that will harness your brain's ability to be creative. One of them is sleep, Mm -hmm. okay? So I got as far as sort of the middle of the night where the... um, Uh, memories are being sort of embedded across networks in your brain. So when you go through the night towards the, you can say the later part of the night, or I kind of think of it early morning, you know, when you're having that dream sleep, REM sleep, that new information that you have taken in is um, connected to your previous memories, your previous experiences, um, all the other information that you have built up in your brain over the years. And that's kind of why you can have those mad dreams where it's a bit of something from yeah. today with something from your childhood or whatever, all kind of mixed together. OK, now, if you regularly get sufficient quantity of sleep, which for adults um, really is between um, seven to nine yeah. hours sleep a night and sufficient quality, good quality sleep. So by that, I mean, you go through those full five cycles. Yeah. Okay, you will then wake up with um, solutions. How many times have you kind of wrestled with a problem and then you get a good night's sleep and you wake up with the answer? When I have what happens is I wake up and it's as soon as I hit the shower. That's when it pops into my head. Right, You get it. Okay, I frequently get it as soon as I wake up. So say when I'm writing my book, you know, I could be really struggling and I've learned now. I know now I just stop. I stop and I say it. I give talks to loads of corporate companies and, you know, you know, I, I gave one to architects, you know, and they're working to a deadline. And I say, stop, take a break, do something restorative, get a good night's sleep. You've put the problem into Feeding your the brain. unconscious, I call that. Feed yeah. it. Yes, exactly. You feed the information into your brain and it will come out the next morning. You might need more than one night's sleep. You know, how many times does the, the, the idea come to you in the supermarket? Well, pre-pandemic when you're not stressed because stress is going to interfere with. It. So your brain has the capacity. Your brain is bloody brilliant. Trust it a bit more. You don't have to always force it. But put the ideas in. Another time when it happens is, is when you're daydreaming. Yeah. Okay. So a lot of us are so busy all the time. We're always doing. Um, now, and I'm not very good at sitting doing nothing. I really mm-hmm. am. Because that's where my slip into mental health issues occurs. When you're not active. Not, you know, I when yeah. I'm not active. Right. I can start to ruminate. Um, you know, I mentioned you off air and I, I've talked about it in my own podcast as well. My father had what was called manic mm-hmm. depression back then or it's bipolar now or whatever so you when you grow up with someone like that and he was also suicidal mm-hmm. throughout my whole teens 
you're very aware of your own, you know, tendency towards yeah. a bit of depression or whatever, because you want, don't want to go that route. Um, so I tend to, you know, be very wary of when and how I might get depressed. So that is what would happen to me if I kind of, and, and, and for me, the most challenging time was when I was raising my children. So I would have to be yeah. there to monitor and make sure they're safe, but I couldn't actively be doing something. Uh, and, you know, I had a blue chair that I would sit in and look out the garden and I would ruminate, okay. you know, and I would get depressed yeah. because like, is this it? Is this what yeah. it's all about? Is there, you know, and I remember doing a podcast. I think it's my very first podcast with Hilary Fannin. And um, we were just talking about, you know, that and motherhood and, you know, those kind of things. And she, she laughed. She said she had a red chair, mm -hmm. you know, and it was just that thing of, you know, I, I need to be active and doing and when you're raising kids that can be quite um quite difficult and and also you can't have like i need stimulating and challenging conversations and to be and you don't have that with young kids so that for me but i'm i'm kind of aware of of that but anyway that was completely sidetracking so daydreaming what's really interesting is again when you look at the electrical activity in your brain when you're daydreaming and by daydreaming i mean not actively engaged in yeah. something not consciously actively engaged in something so actually in a way it could be when you're you know kind of strolling along you know the street or you, do you yeah. know what i mean when you're not um, and maybe for you it's when that you're in the shower what, what what i try and do is i try and engage in activity that's uh, that i would consider to be playful so if i want to create don't tell me what you're doing in the shower. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if I'm if I'm sitting down and I have to write a short story, we'll say if I'm writing a book and this has to yeah. be what I'm trying to do is is I'm trying to daydream. I'm trying to get into that daydream space where I'm, I'm not really controlling it, but I am. And that's where stories yeah. reveal themselves to me. That's, that's the flow. flow. Yeah. And how yeah. I get yeah. into that space is I know if I don't want to get into that space, then I start to think what's a good idea. I don't do that. Sometimes I'll, I'll actually sit down and think of the worst, silliest idea possible and write my way out of it. And, by, and right, I think okay. back to when I was a kid. When I was a child and I used to play with Lego, I didn't care about whether what I was making was good. I didn't care what it was. I was simply engaged in the act of making Lego. Yeah. And then I would engage in yeah. that daydream state, which I now know as flow. So as an adult, that's what I do. I sit down at my laptop and I try and engage in play and I don't judge whether what yeah. I'm doing is good or bad. I'm simply having fun. And once I'm there, yeah. I've left the room. And th that's what I'd like to know. How can I spend three hours writing a story, then finish it and literally feel as if I didn't write this? Like I'm watching someone else's film. Like wh what happened in that space? Because you haven't. Um, you you have just let your brain flow. Right. You've just let it produce without your dialogue uh, on top of it, without your uh, constant judgment no dialogue, yeah. of yourself. There is no dialogue. You are doing it. So it's that dialogue, and you know, that thinking, that talking, that self-talk is at the root of most mental um, activity. I'm going to ask you one last question before we go, because it was a question that was asked on Instagram. Right. And I'd really like to know the answer. Epigenetic trauma or vestigial memory, like, can we inherit memories? Does the brain inherit memories? Like, why am I scared of spiders? I've, I've never met a tarantula. So definitely we have inherent fears and some people have hyper fears. Um, so if you go to 23andMe, yeah. 
you know, or one of those places and you get your genome sequenced or whatever, they can tell you whether you are likely to have a fear of spiders, whether you are likely to, to, um, you know, like I can't stand, um, oh God, what's that? Coriander. Uh, I I, I just hate the taste of it. Um, They can tell you things like that based on your genomic profile now i would have a huge did you say you have the fear of spiders i have a horrible fear i'm, of spiders. I'm not too bad like i'm not i'm actually no i'm okay with spiders but like other people other people are scared of spiders and we live in ireland we live in ireland yeah there's a kind of a few there's a few yeah yeah exactly there's a few theories on it but yeah no i look at a spider and my whole yeah. like i literally get the, the the hairs on the back of my neck stand up but you've never learned as an irish person that this spider is a threat no i never learned to fear to be to fear of spiders however so there's always a combination it's always a combination of if you want to use that old thing nature and nurture but i actually think it's a combination of evolution yeah. So our brains have evolved. And so so it makes sense, right? So uh, ancestors of ours who had an instinctive fear, you know, who were f- more fearful of spiders, maybe responded more quickly. And so therefore, the ones who didn't yeah. died out because they got killed by the spiders, mm-hmm. you know what I mean, or whatever. So there's that bit. There is your, um, there's sort of your genetic history, you know, from your particular family. Um, and then your lived experience, you know, and your learned experience. And that shapes all of those. And like people think that genes are are your genes, but genes are switched on and wow. switched off by experiences. Wow. So, you know, I could have the same genetic profile as a twin sister. But if we've had different experiences, the expression of certain genes. Holy will be different. fuck. I know it. I know in my book I wrote about. So there's things called. Um, oh, I can't remember the name of them. I nearly have to flick. Environmental factors, EDCs, okay. I was right, and endocrine disrupting compounds, okay? And so basically they can impact on various bodily symptoms and hormones. So when your brain communicates electrical and chemical signals, it uses neurotransmitters, yes. okay? They send messages. But hormones, so they are involved in sort of the immediate behaviors. But your hormones are also chemical messengers, but they influence their influence is wider and for longer. So they um, they will influence sort of your overall mood rather than, you know, a particular um, physical yeah. action, do, do you know. But you have hormones everywhere. You know, people tend to think of uh, testosterone and estrogen as just being involved in reproduction, but they're involved in learning and memory and all sorts of things. You have loads of those receptors in your hippocampus that mm-hmm. I was talking about earlier. But your endocrine system... Um, releases your hormones but lots of these edcs are are found in things like soap and fire retardant chemicals and they're around us and wow. you know in things uh, that we consume they're even in makeup etc or in certain types of plastic and plastic bottles okay and they can disrupt your chemicals okay and they can impact and have changes on your chemicals generally not in a very good way okay now one of the really things that I was interested in when I was researching this myself for my book is that that influence can be passed on to a child but it it could also then be passed on to future generations which is kind of crazy um which is mad. And those EDCs can actually interfere with your ability to manage stress. Um, you know, these so are present that's in products kind of a... that we can purchase. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So um, 
let me see. Um, yeah, so they, let me see if just to see a list here because I'm, I'm tired. You know, they can be in the soil that grows the food or the water that you bathe in, you know, things that you drink, um, things that you eat, uh, antibacterial uh, soap, some food stickers, some Teflon cooking, lots of stuff, right? Um, but the thing is, actually, um, yeah, I mean, they can, they can, impact so here's what i actually have i have the page opened here around and this is i think the epigenetics Mm -hmm. that you're talking about so edcs are all around us an exposed mother can biologically transfer edcs to her baby through the placenta and breast milk there's also evidence that edcs can bring about changes in the cells that ultimately give rise to sperm and eggs this means that the effects of edcs can be passed through genes from parent to child and future generations could inherit the negative consequence of exposure experienced by their ancestors, sustaining impact long after the original chemical is cleaned up. Or that broken is mad. Down. That's kind of yeah. mad, isn't it? But that makes sense in a way about how it can happen. And as I said, I only learn about that as well, because I, I mean, I have a whole chapter in my book on beating brain fog about mm-hmm. hormones, because hormone changes can impact on how your memory functions and various other things. And so, um, yeah, I found that absolutely fascinating when I read the research on that, about how it can it can kind of progress on to next generation. So I'm a bit like you, anyone listening, trying to get my head around that whole epigenetics thing. But it does make sense. If something changes your hormones, that can influence, you know, the the makeup of your sperm and your your eggs. And they go on to make the next human being. Fucking so, hell. Yeah, it's mad stuff. Um, I think we'll leave it at that, Sabina, because I'm conscious of your time. But uh, thank you so much for that chat. That was lovely. That was really informative Thank and you. I got an element of therapy for it as well because there was certain stuff that, I don't know, just the change of, like I'm, I'm seeing in myself certain uh, negative mental health patterns coming back to me. Coming back and just again. hearing someone say that like, sure of course there's massive change. These are one of the things that will cause yeah. all patterns to reemerge. I'm like, oh, fuck it, yeah of course. Yeah. This is, this is just part of the process yeah. of the pandemic. So thank you there to my guest, Sabina Brennan. That was a really enjoyable chat. I'll catch you next week. I'll probably have a hot take. All right. In the meantime, enjoy the weather. Rub a dog. Be, have, be compassionate to yourself. Have a bit of self-compassion. Can't go wrong with some self-compassion. Forgive yourself. Yurt. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.